In order to understand meaning to a group of people, you have to know something about where they're at today. We're agriculturalists, we're corn farmers by tradition, and we're dry farmers, meaning that for the most part, we don't irrigate. So moisture is a huge part of our necessity. Much like the seashell, you know, parrot and macaw feathers, again, where do those originate from? They're metaphors. They represent moisture coming from some great body of, of water out there coming to replenish our land. And it's like a silent prayer advocating that moisture come to this dry area. This is Mesa Verde Voices, a podcast connecting modern people to the people who lived around Mesa Verde hundreds of years ago. And I'm your host, Kayla Woodward. In this season, we're talking all about trade. This episode is the second in a series we're calling The Trade of Color. We're talking about three different items all associated with something very precious in the desert. Water. Those items are seashells, feathers, and turquoise. And today we're focusing on feathers. And it was a particular artifact made of feathers that brought me to the edge of the Cedars Museum in Utah. So we're looking at the uh, the apron, the macaw feather apron, and uh, you can clearly see that we've got cords of feathers. Again, this is Jonathan Till. Well, I'm the curator of collections at the edge of the Cedars State Park Museum. Uh, I'm also an archaeologist. When I think about the desert of the Southwest, a tropical bird is definitely not the first thing that comes to mind. It was uh, found... Well to the north of here, uh, north of the Abajo Mountains, so butting up into uh, Canyonlands country. So the story goes that in the 1950s, there was an outfitter by the name of... Kent Frost, uh, one of the early outfitters um, out here. He was leading some clients through the Canyonlands region, and they stopped in an alcove. And they went to sweep a spot to sit down, and they saw a flash of color and kept sweeping. (laughs) And this flash of color ended up being an incredible find. It is referred to today as the macaw feather apron. It's a multicolor object uh, with lots of uh, flashy orange and red, and then some spectacular blues there in contrast to the orange. Uh, These feathers are from scarlet macaws. It's about, oh, about eight inches wide and, oh gosh, a foot and a half long. It's made up of 11 of these thick cords, with macaw feathers wrapped around each one, although it seems that there used to be 12. And uh, they are so patterned so that most of it is uh, red or orange, and then there is a, uh, oh, just a very simple emblem of that flashy blue in the middle of it all. And then on each end, it has a tie made of squirrel hide. My bet is that that those were actually the tie that would have helped suspend the uh, apron from somebody's hips, pelvis. Okay, so back to the story. The uh, apron went with the client back to California, is what I'm told. But fortunately... Mr. Frost thought about that and wrote the client and said, hey, could we get that item back here? It belongs here. And uh, that forward-thinking person agreed, and she sent it back. From there, the apron spent some time on exhibit and some time in a safety deposit box until... And uh, Mr. Frost uh, donated it to the Edge of the Cedars State Park Museum. So all that to say is that it, it was a good news story and that this really precious and very remarkable artifact came back at least close to where it had had a home for probably at least 800 years. 
So where did all these feathers come from? And the many other macaw feathers that are found throughout the Mesa Verde region? My name is Luis Garcia. I am um, Tiwa and Pito Pueblo. I'm an educator and a traditional Pueblo weaver. You might remember Louis's voice from the episode about cacao. Louis was born and raised in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and his wife? She's a Nahuatl from the state of Morelos in Mexico. The Nahuatl people are descendants from the ancient Aztecs. So the Nahuatl language, that's N-A-H-U-A-T-L, is also known as the Aztec language. Today, it's the largest indigenous language group of Mesoamerica, of Mexico. Quick trivia fact, you've probably used some Nahuatl words already today. The Spanish borrowed many Nahuatl words that were later absorbed into English. Things like avocado, chocolate, coyote, and guacamole. And the ancestors of the Nahuatl people are one group who would have been trading with the folks in the Mesa Verde region. The Pochtecas, which were Mesoamerican traders, were coming into the Southwest to bring trade items and technologies. And so there was most likely a trade language or a pidgin that allowed these early traders to communicate with members of other language groups to create an effective trade system. Just like how we use some of those Nahuatl words in English today, ancestral Pueblo communities and these Mesoamerican communities were sharing words to be able to trade all these items that we've been talking about. It turns out Louis is somewhat of a modern-day Pochteca himself, participating in the trade of cacao, shells, and feathers. The feather trade today is is still a very important part of the culture and history of both Mesoamerica and the Pueblo Southwest. And having a foot in each of those worlds kind of gives me an advantage because I'm able to travel back and forth. Now, just a quick note here. The Migratory Bird Treaty Act makes it illegal to trade or sell any migratory bird, its feathers, nests, or eggs without a proper federal permit. And for tribal community members, such as Louis, there's an exemption. Today, Louis has two birds, a scarlet macaw and a small Amazon parrot. I always wanted to have a macaw because of their importance in our Pueblo culture as well as the Mesoamerican culture. Louis's cultural knowledge of the Pueblo world and the Nahuatl world, paired with his firsthand technical knowledge in raising a scarlet macaw and using its feathers, made him the perfect person to help answer some of these questions about how the ancestral Pueblo people may have been getting the feathers for things such as the macaw feather apron at the edge of the Cedars Museum. So what I think is that most likely the traders or the pochtecas were bringing these birds up as chicks. When they're hand-raised, they become very docile, as opposed to a bird that has been wild-caught as an adult. Those are the birds that'll take off a finger, and they're very mean and almost impossible to handle. I think that our ancestors or some of you know the early people, especially in the northern Mexico region, understood that. You know, whether or not these birds were treated as eggs or as chicks or as live birds or as fully mature birds, you know, there's some debate or discussion on, on that whole issue. Again, that's Hopi archaeologist Lyle Belenqua. We do know that there were areas in the southwest, particularly in northern Mexico, that were more probably breeding these birds. There's evidence that they had established pens that they were raising parrots and macaws in. So it may have been, you know, one or two or a small group of individuals who were solely dedicated to raising these birds. 
the Casas Grandes region would probably have been the first stop of those Mesoamerican traders coming up into the Southwest, and it's kind of like the entryway into the Southwest. Casas Grandes is about 180 miles southwest of present-day El Paso, Texas. We see on some pottery, particularly from, from southern New Mexico, they had very elaborate designs and almost like daily life scenes painted on their ceramics. And in some of those, we see individuals transporting birds in, in what are probably cages. You know, there's that kind of uh, real-life evidence in terms of, you know, being visually portrayed of an individual moving birds around. And so, you know, we definitely know that this was a specialized skill, you know, that somebody had. And it probably just wasn't your everyday person. And from there, these traders would have likely done one of two things. One, perhaps they kept the bird at these breeding centers to continue breeding. Or two, they would have wanted to trade the bird before the time that those birds reach maturity. And this is because macaws tend to imprint on humans. Because in the wild, these birds mate for life. And so it's usually from the time of sexual maturity and adulthood that they will have um, solidified that bond. Between 5 and 10 years old is when uh, something like as big as a macaw would reach sexual maturity. And so that's the reason why they imprint is because they do have a lifetime mating bond. We find evidence that places in northern Mexico were centers for keeping adult macaws. But that's still pretty far from somewhere like the Four Corners. You know, it's quite possible that Chaco, as a center place, uh, would have had more access to things macaw, for example, or down at uh, Wapatki, outside of Flagstaff. Wapatki is probably the greatest source of macaws in the northern southwest. We don't have that many examples of them, uh, 100 to 150 of them, but I'd say probably you know, half to a quarter of, of all macaws are coming from, are found at Wapatki. Once the chicks have been traded to their final home, have reached maturity, and are able to grow these bright, desirable feathers, how did folks go about acquiring the feathers from the bird? Were they plucking them? It's hard to say. I mean, there's definitely a way to tell if the feather was allowed to mature on the bird or whether it was plucked prematurely. But what I can say as a bird owner myself and just from experience is that the birds are very noble and very social, and they get angry. So they have very strong beaks, and if you ever have handled a parrot and have been bit by a parrot, you know what that is. I mean, they break walnuts open like sunflower seeds. That's not a bird that I want to pluck a feather out, you know? (laughs) So luckily for the birds, it seems that likely the easiest method is just waiting for the feathers to fall out naturally. Twice annually, the birds will molt their feathers. So anytime they drop feathers, then I'll just pick them up as I'm feeding them or cleaning up after them. And so it would just make more sense to just wait for the feathers to fall out naturally. And if they're kept in an adequate space with enough room, then those feathers will not get damaged. It seems most likely that these small groups or individuals would have specialized in raising these birds, and then, just like Louis does today, gather feathers as they naturally fall out, and then make scheduled visits to other communities to trade them. And so I'll be collecting them and save them up, and then whenever we go to a feast day or if we go out to Hopi, we'll go visit our, our friends and individuals that we know may need feathers, either for their art or 
for ceremonial use. And I think that it was very much like that prehistorically as well. I think very likely they were on a schedule. So they kind of knew when certain ceremonies or things were going to be happening. So that trade was so very important on many different levels from the most basic on a survival level all the way up to, you know, an aesthetic level and ceremonial level. So, you know, I'm definitely living the life of a Pueblo man and continuing with the tradition of our ancestors today. So that's something that's very special that I'm very proud of and being able to uh, participate in and continue on in that tradition. Louis shared his experience as a modern-day trader in the Pueblos, and the trade and use of these items still takes place at Hopi today. It's not, you know, relegated to prehistory. I think probably every Hopi family has their own collection of parrot feathers, seashell ornaments, things that we use in ceremony. And I think a lot of them are, are mostly, you know, relegated to ceremonial religious use. They're not necessarily worn. At least feathers aren't worn every day. They still have that same use as our ancestors used them. And so again, there's that silent metaphor of moisture associated with it, but also the bright colors. We talk about the landscape that these feathers, that these birds originate from, you know, they're full of colors, bright colors, the landscape itself. And so that, you know, the metaphor for vibrant landscapes. I mean, the feathers themselves are so beautiful and very sought after in a dry desert environment. So they were able to acquire these very bright colors and feathers that were very beautiful to be used in ceremony. So it just added another layer of the um, power that the men were able to create in the kiva to bring the rain. Mesa Verde Voices is a production of KSJD Community Radio in Cortez, Colorado. It is created in collaboration with Mesa Verde National Park and funded by the Mesa Verde Museum Association with a matching grant from the National Park Service. Special thanks to Robert Dobry, Cindy Cooperwriter, and Bailey Springmeyer for your help in research for this episode. And a huge thanks to Lyle Belenqua, Jonathan Till, and Louis Garcia for sharing your stories with us. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kayla Woodward, with engineering help from Robert Woodward. Our music is by David Morella. For photos of the macaw feather apron, check us out on Instagram and Facebook, or visit our website, mesaverdevoices.org. Also be sure to check out Edge of the Cedars State Park Museum on Facebook. They're always sharing really great photos of their collections. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Thanks for listening.